little different feel tonight with the, all the kids joining us. That was good to have some extra people here singing together. Uh, that's, that's a lot of fun. So that's going to be how we're going to do things for a while here while we have Team Kid going on. And I think we'll probably see some numbers increase with the kids here as they tell their friends what's going on. And they'll be here to join us as well. So we'll look forward to, to more of that. Uh, so as we get started with our study time tonight, and you have your Bibles, open them up to Colossians. Well, Colossians chapter 1. We'll continue in our study there in Colossians. And last week we began looking at the Apostle Paul's statements addressing the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there were eight He Is statements that in that section that we looked at last week. We only got through the first six of those statements. <clears throat> so tonight we'll have the, the last two. And those statements are that we looked at last week are mostly dealing with the person of Christ. That is, who He is. And tonight, I want to finish up that list of He is statements and then continue uh, briefly into the next section of text, dealing more in depth with the work of Jesus Christ. So I'll start by reminding you what those eight He is statements are that we looked at last week in our section of Scripture here, and they, they are this. He is the image of the invisible God. Remember, we're talking about Jesus Christ here. He is the image of the invisible God. He's also the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. And as we'll see tonight, he is preeminent and he is fully God. And keep in mind as we get into these last two statements here that, that Paul had to write these things as a correction to the false understandings about Christ that were being put forward by the Gnostic heresy of the day. And though you and I may not be believing heresy about Jesus, we need to hear what the Word of God has to say about who Jesus is. We need to be reminded not just about what Jesus has said about salvation and life as Christians, which is of utmost importance, but we also need to see, we also need to understand what he has said about himself. And that's what we'll be looking at. So let's pray, and then we'll continue in our study with the last two He Is statements, which also, I believe, happen to be the most important. So let's have a word of prayer tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for a time of singing and that, that the kids could come in and join us um, as we sing praises to you, Lord. May they learn that this is what we do in the body of Christ. We sing praise to our God as well as listen to your word, as well as praying. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the ability to pray, to lift up our praises to you, to lift up our supplications to you, our fears, all the things, Lord, that are going on in our lives as Christians. I pray, Lord, that we will continually come back to you because you are the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies, Lord. Your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, be together to study your word. I pray through your spirit, Lord, you would help us to have understanding, that you would give us wisdom according to your word, which is perfectly right and true all the time and extremely relevant 
forever. It is never going to be a time where your word is irrelevant. May we treasure it, Lord, and delight in it. We thank you for our salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. We give you praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to read our text, um, including the text that we read last week, uh, at least the portion of the text we read last week that includes all of these He is statements about Jesus. And uh, so I'll start by reading that. We're in Colossians 1. I'll start in verse 15. I'm going to read through 19 to start with tonight. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is preeminent. That's where we'll begin tonight, um, which we saw there uh, right away in uh, verse 18. So at the end of verse 18, we find this statement sitting there at the end of verse 18 uh, that Christ is preeminent. And this statement about Christ is connected to the fact that Jesus is the head of the church and the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Okay, these are connected. And this verse tells us that he is all the other things he is that we, we talked about. He's all those things so that he can be preeminent. And that is why we see the words here in the, in the text that say, that in everything. Okay, we see that in the verse, that in everything. His being preeminent flows from the fact that he is all the rest of what he is. Okay, and notice, he's said to be preeminent in everything. He's supreme in everything. He surpasses everything else, and that will never change. Okay, the meaning of this word is, is to be first or to have first place when we talk about this word preeminent. Again, he, he does so in everything. He is preeminent in everything. As compared to everything, he is better. He is the perfect example of everything good and right and true. It's also important to note that Jesus is, he is the preeminent one whether a person holds him in that regard or not. It doesn't matter if a person holds Jesus in that first place or as the preeminent one or not. The point is that people, especially Christians, should recognize that he is first and then relegate everything else in life to a place below him, especially self. Like John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the attitude that John the Baptist had about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. Also, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from, a, from heaven is above all. That's John 3, 31. Jesus doesn't need us 
to make him preeminent. He simply is preeminent. He he has this position bestowed on him by the Father, and it belongs to no one else, and it never will. That is why Paul said to the uh, Philippian church that he has been given that name, that name that is above every, every name. Paul said, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's Philippians 2.9. So let's look now at the next verse, verse 19, for our final statement about who Christ is. He is preeminent, and here in verse 19, we see this last statement. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is fully God. He is fully God. A false teaching at the time was that all the divine attributes of God were split. They were supposedly divided among the different spirits that were thought to emanate from God, and therefore no one spirit possessed all the attributes of God. And this is done away with by this verse alone. And as we looked before, even further on in uh, chapter 2 of this book, this statement about Christ is is made again in chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Not Not a portion, not a part, the whole fullness of deity. Point is that Jesus Christ is God. He possesses every divine attribute all at the same time. He is the exact imprint of his nature, according to Hebrews 1.3. And we looked at that, I think, last week. But false teaching existed back then, and Paul is, is having to go after that false teaching, and that false teaching exists today. It continues on. It's the attacks on the deity of Christ, as I said last week, are continuing, and they will continue. And in a book called When Heaven Invades Earth, uh, Bill Johnson, who's a pastor in Bethel Church in Reading, he says, Christ is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. It is a title that points to an experience. This is where he goes off the rails here. He had to receive the anointing in an experience to accomplish what the Father desired. The anointing is what linked Jesus, the man, to the divine, enabling him. And then another book He says, Jesus had no ability to heal the sick. He couldn't cast out devils. He had no ability to raise the dead. He said of himself in John 5.19, the son can do nothing of himself. He had set aside his divinity. Jesus so emptied himself that he was incapable of doing what was required of him by the Father without the Father's help. And none of this is taught in Scripture anywhere. This is a twisting of Scripture with the goal, as always, when, when the person of Christ is attacked, the goal is always bringing Christ down and elevating man. Okay? We want to avoid that. And they have to do this to support the rest of their false doctrine. But when we look at the, that whole verse in context, we see it has nothing to do with Jesus not being able to do anything without an experience or, with the Father, or without the Father's help. Um. So if you want to turn there, John 5, I'm going to look there briefly here. John chapter 5, verse 19 is, is the verse that he quoted a small portion from. 
And in the previous verse, the Jews in that section there, the previous verse in that section, the Jews are planning to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal with God. And when we get to verse 19, it is Jesus doubling down and giving them even more reason to kill him. He's not making some other kind of statement. He's, he's doubling down on what he's just said and what they, they know he's claimed, and that's why they want to kill him. So that verse that he quoted a portion of, the whole verse is, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Okay, and he just took the one portion that says the Son can do nothing of his own accord. But Jesus is explaining that he does nothing apart from or independent of the Father. Okay, he, he doesn't go his own way. He's, he's tying himself in perfect unity of direction and goal and outcome with the will and activity of the Father. So you see, this is Jesus making another claim to be God. Not making a statement about having no power to do anything. But that's what happens when this false teaching comes about. We begin to believe about Jesus that he's something he's not, or that he's less than what he is. He is the preeminent one. Jesus Christ is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is fully God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is... John 1.18, that's talking about Jesus as the only God who is at the Father's side, He Himself being God. Even the Jewish leaders knew that Jesus claimed to be God. John 10.33, the Jews answered Him, is it, not for a good, uh, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, because Jesus asked them that question. For what of my good works are you going to stone me? He says, they said, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So people today might talk about saying, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, or Jesus isn't God. The people at the time knew he was claiming to be God. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy, because they believed he was just a man. So that is the last of the eight he is statements. He is preeminent, and he is fully God. If a person was unclear about who Jesus is, Paul has written the definitive list to refute uh, the lies and the false beliefs plaguing the church at the time about who Jesus is. And as you can see from my quotes from Uh, Bill Johnson's books, The Lies Are Alive and Well Today. Again, the goal of teaching and believing these lies is always to bring Christ down so as to elevate man. That is not something that Paul was willing to let stand, and neither should we. We shouldn't stand for it in our own lives, our own beliefs, and we shouldn't stand for it if we hear other Christians saying those things. Not that we should yell at them or be mean to them, but They need to be corrected with Scripture, and you can take them right to Colossians. Show them who Christ is. Again, this had to be explained by Paul, not because the Colossian church had never heard it. Of course they had. They had come to faith in Christ. They had been taught about Christ. But there were those within the church that were distorting 
the truth about Christ. They are distorting the truth about the nature of His person and the truth about the work that He did to accomplish salvation. Like attacking the person of Christ, false teaching regarding the work of Christ uh, is almost always a weakening of that work. If, if the work that Christ did on earth for salvation is um, being twisted or is under attack, it pretty much always weakens that work. It, it makes it less effective. It, it makes Christ not effective for salvation because, because He was not effective, I must do X, Y, or Z to help Him with my salvation. Okay? So this, this attack of the work of Christ or false beliefs about the work of Christ weaken what He did. Not actually weaken it, okay? It, Christ did what Christ did, and it is absolutely effective. I just mean it weakens it in the minds of people. Therefore, they don't turn to Him for salvation. They turn to themselves for salvation. And verse 20 in our text back in Colossians makes it clear that Jesus accomplished everything. It says, "...and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things." whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. He reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace. And all of this was done through the shedding of His own blood on the cross. He didn't need help from me. He doesn't need help from you. He did it. So a question, why did anything or anyone need to be reconciled to Himself? Why did, why did anything need to be reconciled. What do you guys think? Because we're sinners, okay? Any other thoughts on that? Okay, because there's a debt because of sin. The debt has to be paid. Okay, and we couldn't pay it. There's a time when God created everything, that everything was good, right? But that all changed in, early on in the Scriptures in Genesis. That all changed. Adam's sin not only condemned the entire human race, but all of creation as well. And Romans 5.12 puts it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's all broken. Right? We are all, according to other parts of Scripture, spiritually dead apart from Christ. We need redemption. We need reconciliation. Things were no longer good. There's a Greek word used that we get the word reconciled from, and that word is katalaso, and it means to change or exchange. And turn with me, if you would, over to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 10 and 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
he uses this word three times, twice in verb form and once in noun form at the end of verse 11. Now look at what Paul does with that word in our Colossians passage. It's the same word, but he adds a preposition there. It it increases the meaning. It makes the meaning of it more powerful. Uh, This makes the meaning, and I'm talking about verse 20, makes the meaning of verse 20 more like this. And through him to thoroughly, completely, or totally reconcile to himself all things. There's there's more power to this word here that that Paul has used. Uh, It is completely changed or exchanged. It's a bringing back of what had been lost. Reconciliation. We saw there in that Romans 5 passage, it says, uh, um, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And that's a reference there to, to Christ's perfect life. His life as a human being lived in perfection, taking our place, going to the cross. We receive by imputation, his righteousness that he earned, not us. We receive that from him. He takes on our guilt, our sin, um, and bears the wrath of God in our place. So he's talking there about how we shall be saved by his life. Without Christ being able to live that perfect life, there would be no salvation. Without being able to receive that righteousness of Christ from him, we could not be saved. And this goes with the theme of the preeminence of Christ here. And Paul's goal of refuting the false teaching that Jesus, his work is insufficient. Right? It doesn't, it's not enough. There's nothing left undone, in fact, when Christ did his work of living that perfect life, of going to the cross on our behalf, bearing the wrath of God for us. There's nothing left undone, nothing missed. It's all made right and restored. So according to verse 20, if you're looking at that, this reconciliation brought about peace. What peace is Paul talking about here? Why why does this reconciliation bring about peace? What do you think? Why would we need peace? Is this talking about world peace? No. What's it talking about? Peace with God, right? Yeah, peace with God. Not, not world peace. We're not in a beauty pageant where you know, they pass the mic and that's what everybody wants is world peace. There's, we talked earlier about Adam's sin, about the fall of man. And there's been enmity with God ever since the fall of man. What is waiting for man is the wrath of God. It is a war that man cannot win. Man man lives now on this earth, sometimes in worldly thinking or worldly terms, sometimes in a peaceful existence. Okay? Uh, But, like, usually it's people with a lot of money that can live kind of a peaceful existence. But that's only temporary. Okay, any, any peacefulness on this earth that we might experience uh, apart from God is only temporary. It's only a mirage, really, because the wrath of God is coming. 
and it is being piled up against sinful men. And if you want to look with me back in the Old Testament, back in um, Nahum, the book of Nahum, it's right after Micah, it's near the end, getting near the end of the Old Testament. We'll look at Nahum. We never go to Nahum, do we? When was the last time you turned to Nahum? (laughs) Nahum chapter 1 and verses 2 through 8. And looking here at this description of God's wrath, the wrath of God that's being prophesied here against Nineveh. Okay, the city of Nineveh. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Listen to this description of God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. We see in there at least one glimmer of hope, right? For those uh, who take refuge in him, there is hope. In that sense, if you take refuge in him, the Lord is good. He's seen as good by those who take refuge in him. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. But something else is waiting for those who are not taking refuge in him, and that is his wrath. God's wrath is eminent against all the wickedness of this world, and there is, there is no escaping it for anyone except the one who is at peace with God. This is why understanding about the peace that we have in Christ is important. How is anyone at peace with God? By being in Christ, in the one who made peace by bearing the wrath of God in your place. We need this peace. We need peace with God, and it comes through Jesus. In Acts 10, 35 and 36 says, But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Peace comes only through the work of Christ. So to diminish that message... For the Colossian church to have people teaching something that diminishes the work of Christ, it diminishes the one who has made peace with God on our behalf. 
Why would you want to diminish that? And Paul writes the next verse to be very personal, to show who the work of Christ was directed at, who it had benefited. Again, it was done for his church. Look at how he makes that clear. Look at at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He says, and you. If you're sitting in the hearing of this letter uh, and you hear what follows, you know the apostle is writing about you personally and that is what he wants. Um, he, he's wanting those that hear this to recognize he's talking about you, you who are in Christ. This isn't for everyone, it's you who are in Christ. Remember, Paul is writing to believers at Colossae. He wants all those who are the church to know the work that was done for them and how far Jesus had to go to get them back, right? To reconcile them, as we talked about. Now, a little backtrack here. The previous verse said he reconciled all things to himself. But Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Those that enter into destruction here have clearly not been reconciled. They haven't been reconciled. And this is a definitive statement from Jesus. So a question comes to mind then. How can both things be true? How can he have reconciled all things to himself, and at the same time, he says not all are reconciled? What do you think? How can both of those be true? We're given a choice. Okay, so some people don't come to faith in Christ. Okay. All things. All things cannot mean every person is reconciled to God. That's, that would be universalism. That says everyone will eventually get back to God, and they can do so by some other means other than Jesus. And that's not true. No, all things cannot mean every person is reconciled to God. The only way this can be consistently understood is to conclude that all things means all things that he has specifically reconciled. All things he has sought to reconcile. What is it that he has sought to reconcile? The elect, right? The church. All those who come to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There are different ways of referring, all those are different ways of referring to those who believe in the, in the biblical sense, those who come to faith in Christ. That's what he has reconciled. Okay, he pursues them. He gets them. He gets them by reconciling them to himself. And how else do we see those he reconciles referred to in Scripture? Let's look at a couple other definitive statements made by Jesus concerning who he's pursuing. John chapter 10, if you turn there. 
John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. This is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. My sheep hear my voice. Who are my sheep that hear? This is a definitive statement. He's not saying they might hear, Uh, You know, if they tune into the right frequency, they'll hear. He's saying, my sheep hear my voice. And what else do you say? He says, I know them, and they follow me. These are statements of fact. There's no uncertainty here in Jesus' words. He's contrasting them with those who are not his sheep. From verse 26, which says, but You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. In John 6, 39, it says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Who who is the all that the Father has given him? What do you think? Who are the all? All believers. All those who repent come to faith in Christ for salvation, are those that the Father has given him. They will come. They will hear his voice. And he says there in our passage we just looked at, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. These are promises that we can claim. These are, this brings assurance to our life as Christians. This should bring us joy as Christians. Many who are lost will remain lost. They will never be reconciled. But none of those that He has determined to save will remain lost, but will be reconciled. That's how this seeming contradiction can be reconciled, for lack of a better word. Therefore, He... Actually, it's not lack of a better word. That's a good word. Um, Therefore, He can say all things and not be open to the charge that that he's a liar because some are not reconciled. Some might look at that and say, all things are reconciled, and then other passages where it say, not everyone is saved. Well, then they might say, well, then that passage is not true, but it is. It is true. Without this understanding, the language of Scripture can seem to contradict, but we know that the Bible does not contradict itself. If there's some confusion or some point we have difficulty with, then that's, that's our fault. That's, that's on us. We need to continue to study and pray and ask God to give us understanding. But the Bible does not contradict itself. So therefore, Paul says, and you, in verse 21, this is personal to believers, personal to the elect, to each member of the church, because they are reconciled by Christ. Remember, there's their idea about Christ, their Perhaps their thoughts of their salvation has been shaken by these false teachings. And so Paul brings the truth to them in this letter and reminds them who Christ is and what Christ has done and very specifically 
for you. If you have repented and put your faith in Christ for salvation, this is for you. You have been reconciled. Look what Paul says about the and you people of verse 21. He says, you who were once alienated, right? you who were hostile in mind, you who were doing evil deeds. These are all, these are all past tense statements. We need to recognize that when we read this passage. They're past tense statements about the former way of life of the people, of the Christians, right? They were these things. These things are no longer true for the believer. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago about walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, that is what the and you people do. We are no longer those things that we were. Why does he bring these things up? Well, to remind them that they were reconciled and what they were reconciled from and what they were reconciled out of. He's saying, you who were these things and doing these things, he has now reconciled. He said they were, they were alienated. They were estranged, cut off. They were separated. Right? That, that was their condition before the work of Christ changed it. Ephesians 2 12 and 13 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They were hostile in mind, he says. Uh, Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Uh, he said they were hostile in mind. Okay, they had an attitude of hatred toward God, not just indifference. Right? It's not just, oh, I'm just going about my life. The Scripture says that there is enmity between God and men. We are, unbelievers are actively hostile to God. He says that was them, hostile in mind. He said they were doing evil deeds. Okay, the, the evidence of their hatred of God is played out in, in the activity of doing evil. And John 3, 19 and 20 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's revealing. Right? The, the light here, this, this reference to Christ, has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. They love their sin rather than Christ. And why is it? Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, doesn't come to the light. Why? Because their evil works are exposed. All this is said, again, to get his uh, point made in the next verse, which uh, we'll have to look at next time. When we see, and we look at that, and we'll see the reason that Christ reconciled sinners to himself. And that's a really important thing for us, that we will see the reason why he reconciled sinners to himself. And as we continue to go through this letter that Paul wrote, and we see about the person and work of Christ, 
he should be elevated continually in our minds, in our thinking, because of who he is and what he's done. Christ is preeminent. He, he should be first. He should have first place in our life above everything else. And, and Paul here is reminding the people of that and drawing their attention back to that with this list of perfect explanation of who Christ is and what he's done. And again, for, for anyone who's a Christian, this should be a joyful thing. We should look at this and be just overjoyed because of the grace and mercy of God. And for those who hear and who are unbelievers, it should invoke fear that, that the wrath of God is still waiting, waiting for them. But while we're here, there is still hope if you will repent of your sin and turn to Christ for salvation. It's not too late. So let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this picture of the person and work of Christ. I pray, Father, that in our minds and our understanding, Christ would hold this position of first above everything else. Not because we believe it, Lord. He, he already is this. It will never be taken from him. But help us to agree with you, Lord. Help us to agree with the truth about Christ. And we thank you, Lord, again for your mercy towards us who are sinful people. We thank you, Lord, for reconciling us to yourself through your own person and your own work. We thank you, Lord, for granting the gift of faith. We thank you for living a perfect life so that we could be seen as righteous, declared righteous by God because of your righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for taking our sin upon yourself. There is no greater gift. We want to praise you for that each day. In Jesus' name, amen.